We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand-addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers other merch just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons uh, i thought i was alone there for a second <laughs> no i got you back I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. Uh, and this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About Highlanders all the GD time. About mistaken identity. About the Habsburg jaw and its other comorbidities. About your dad not really understanding you and trying to sell you into marriage to a person that neither of you has ever seen. About being the oldest sister. About your maiden aunt actually loving you. About the certain Adam Driver type. Yeah, absolutely about that, though. About how weird Spain is. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. Um, This week, we are discussing a real hard-to-find feel kind of bad for choosing it but here we are the flesh and the devil by Teresa Dennis 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 so we are reading this because it was recommended to us by a listener named Kathleen Phelan thank you so much Kathleen and we were really excited to read it because it was described as archaic <laughs> But in general, Kathleen was just excited, you know, wanted us to read A, Teresa Denny's. But there's really only the two books, The Flesh and the Devil and The Silver Devil, um, because Teresa Denny's had a really short career for a romance novelist. Flesh and the Devil came out in 1980. Uh, I don't really have a back of the book. I just have an excerpt on the back of my book, which I now owe money on. Um, Do you have a back of the book, Isabel? I've got the one from Goodreads. I can read that if you like. Okay. Set against the dazzling opulence and dangerous intrigue of the 17th century Spanish court of King Philip IV, this is the story of the lovely spirited young Juana de Aurelianos, Taken against her will from her home and from Jamie de Nouveau, the man she loves, she is brought to the massive, magnificent Castillo Benevantes, the home of Bartolomé, Duc de Valenzuela, 
the man whom she must be wed. Within the castle's heavy walls, the rebellious Juana finds an atmosphere of secrecy, almost of conspiracy, and a number of cunning, sinister figures, chief among them, whom is the sardonic Philippe Tristin, and the Duke's protector and mercenary behind whose scarred face lie memories of horror Juana can only guess at. But the greatest horror is reserved for Juana, and for Juana alone, for the young Duke she is forced to marry, she discovers is a cruel caricature of a man, a person twisted in mind and body. His wealth and rank can supply Juana with undreamed of luxury, but also with incredible suffering, for the perfumed silks of the master bedchamber conceal the depravity of an unbalanced mind. Juana's brave attempts to escape from the marriage are dealt with harshly, and to her limitless despair, she finds herself irrevocably betrothed to the terrifying balanced duke. Yet against all hope, there is a way out. Swift and brutal action by the arrogant Philippe can ensure Juana's escape from the secrets and treachery of Castillo Benevantes, but Philippe's protection, she fears, may be more dangerous than his enmity, and all too soon he begins to demand a humiliating payment. That's literally the first hundred pages of this 500-page book. <laughs> it's a doorstop. I find it really interesting that, okay, Okay, so Teresa Denny's is actually was actually a woman named Jackie Bianchi, who was an editor for Mills and Boone. And I think it's really interesting that this is the writing of an editor because <laughs> it is so long. Uh, having said that, like I have a hard time pointing out anything that doesn't like tie up neatly at the end. It is a turgid, full text. And I agree. Nothing felt superfluous, which is weird to say for a book of this length. Yeah, not a word wasted. This is not like a Kathleen Woodowis where I have fantasies of like a, you know, what would the edited version of this be like? Like this is clearly like a tight little uh, clock, you know, of a romance novel of a bodice ripper. But like, so this is her second novel. The first one uh, that was published was The Silver Devil, which you've probably heard of if you spend time learning about the classic bodice rippers, right? Like this other Eden, things like that. I think The Silver Devil is a little bit better known. It's a lot easier to find. Isabeau and I had to go through a pretty... uh, extensive search for copies of The Flesh and the Devil. Interlibrary loans were used. We actually reached out to our listener to try and figure out how they got a copy of it (laughs) in a Hail Mary move. Yeah, it's not widely available anywhere, and there isn't a digital copy of it, and there are exorbitant prices on Amazon. Like, there are people selling a hard copy of this book for over $800, and I'm going to go ahead and spoiler alert all of you, it is not worth $800. (laughs) Like, don't do that. If you want, get it in our library loan. My copy came from North Carolina, but don't pay $800 for this, unless you're, like, some romance collector and you have, like, some sort of thing that you, like want to do it that way but for like the book itself I don't I wouldn't spend $800 on it I feel differently I'm like yeah I would love to have this permanently in my collection because I think as we'll get to this is a pretty unique text and it's also like we said super rare like I think Teresa Denny's is like one of those deep cut people who, you know, if you know, you know, right? (laughs) And had like a very short career and wrote two like enormously enormous books. (laughs) And and The Silver Devil is 
kind of a big deal, I think. So where do we even be? Oh, so it was published in 1980. Do you want to guess what won Best Picture in 1980? My guess was Ordinary People. No, it was Kramer versus Kramer. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good Best Picture. In what way? Like that like is a quality film. Also, like all of the terrible stories that came out about Dustin Hoffman in that make me feel vindicated and not liking him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to see what else was nominated that year. The Kramer versus Kramer, yeah, it's a it's a good movie, but very dark. One of those movies where they were just really mean to the female lead actress and re- who happens to be Meryl Streep and they're like, "Look at how good we are at making movies um by just making someone sad in real life." Yeah. And Dustin Hoffman and his whole circus around that. But also, uh, for those of you who don't know, Kramer versus Kramer is about a terrible custody battle. But the the movies that it was up against were All That Jazz, which is one of my favorites. And then Apocalypse Now, Whoa. which I think gets shown, gets a lot more leg than Kramer versus Kramer. And then Breaking Away, which I haven't heard of. Uh, it's a coming-of-age comedy drama. And then set in Bloomington, Indiana, and then Norma Ray was the other one. 1980 had some heavy hitters. Yeah, like all that jazz and Apocalypse Now and Kramer versus Kramer, and then also breaking away Norma Ray. It just go. And I bet you anything, if I had been alive in 1980, I would have been like convinced. I'm so bad at guessing who's going to win. I would have been like convinced it was going to be like Norma Ray. And when Norma Ray lost, I would have been like. You just see, in 30 years, they'll still be talking about Norma Ray, and they'll be like, Kramer versus Kramer who? <laughs> Speaking of who, album of the year went to the self-titled Christopher Cross record. Cool. That's Yacht Rock. <laughs> All right, 1980. I mean, like, yeah, it's like a really bitter custody battle and then also Yacht Rock. Yeah, and also Reagan was elected. Yes, Reagan was elected. I have to, I'm drinking a scotch and soda to help me get in the cultural context of this book. It definitely feels like it's from the 70s. Like, it feels like a very early romance but it feels so uh, – I'm going to use the word feels probably more than I should this episode. But it feels so different from Kathleen Woodowis to me. I think that's a great place to start because I also feel like it is very Woodowisian. But one of the striking differences for me was the setting. I've never read any other book that made Spain sound so unromantic. <laughs> it's it's like so dry. Mm. Everything is like yeah. desiccated. They have there are like these long stretches where they're just like traveling this like semi barren high desert wasteland where there are like aren't a ton of trees. There's no wild things. And I like associate Shanna mm. or even Flame in the Flower with like lushness. Like it's humid and yeah. like the poetry of the language is as humid as the setting itself. This is Spain in decline. This is Spain 200 years after the quote-unquote discovery of the New World. Everyone's being taxed to death and the Habsburgs have taken over the monarchy. And like it feels like a Spain in decline. 
it's it's Europe in decline, right? Like yeah. Portugal is like holding them in. You point out the Habsburgs are more than like they're not just coming into power. They've been in power for way too long and they're way too inbred at this point. Super inbred. To be functional as heads of state. Catholicism versus Protestantism is everywhere. This book is like I think the lushness is so different. So I think the way this book is a Kathleen Woodowis book or similar to it is mere like bodice ripper, right? And I think you're right to point out like this is a, a place of, of deep despair <laughs> compared to like all of Kathleen Woodowis's settings. Another similarity I want to call out before moving on immediately is that both of these authors are not disinclined to talk about what sucked about that point in history. Kathleen Woodowis talks about slavery in her romance novels and people rightfully are upset by the romanticization of owning human beings, right? Rightfully so. But it's also, like, it's not excluded. Mm -hmm. The, like, conditions, that brief moment we're in London, London is fucking disgusting in Shanna. And likewise in Flame and the Flower. And Flesh and the Devil also doesn't shy away, but is way more particular Mm -hmm. and much more researched and invested in, like, the political machinations of the era it's in, which is Philip VIII's, right, dynasty. But the other... Like the headline, right, would be bodice ripper. But whereas I feel like in Kathleen Woodowice's bodice rippers, there are means to an end, right? Like I want to see thigh touching. So I have to make this scene of forced, of rape, right? I have to make rape the first sexual encounter so that nobody thinks less of the heroine, actual calculus that romance novelists make. And we can always forgive a hero, for raping right and it never is borne out in any particular way besides like she resents him and now she likes him in kathleen woodowis whereas in the flesh and the devil the bodice ripping scene is crucial it informs a lot about the characters all of their ongoing motivations like we end up in the same place And we get the same thing, right? We get, like, sex scenes-ish as a result of it. But it also remains this, like, key point of character development Mm -hmm. and plot development, which it's not really in, I think, Kathleen Woodowis. I feel like maybe the flame and the flower because it gets her pregnant, but not so much in Shanna where it's just, like, a thing that happens, It's a scene to get through so that you can get to the more fun scenes. And you're absolutely right to say the initial rape is a point of contention that drives both both characters' motivations, but it is constantly re-upped because of the way that Juana and Philippe talk about that first rape scene. And then the series of non-consensual sex scenes that follow and then at some point there's a question of whether or not they do become consensual but like that does not get resolved for a very long time and so the re-upping of these coercive sex scenes and the way that they have these like weird discussions about them is very unique I think even Johanna Lindsay in her very earliest works, the initial bodice-ripping rape scene feels like, as you said, a means to an end to get to the part where we can start rehabilitating the hero and get over the misunderstanding. Except in her super early stuff where it's like the only kind, but it's like a fully 
realized scare quotes sex scene throughout, right? Like um, A Pirate's Love being an example that comes to mind. Yeah, woof. And this book doesn't – like there's a lot of physical – domination right he's he's like bruising right he's crushing in his physical encounters but there's also like this sense of just like his largeness and his strength and his nature is to be this like crushing force it's interesting because we understand him that way but there are these like weird glimpses of him as something else and like it then casts into doubt our heroine if I may, her perspective on what's transpiring between them. It almost seems like he has such a reputation as such a a Don Juan, but like a tender lover, like good at sex, like is able to use his talents at lovemaking in order as a survival tactic, right? We hear from all of these other women how like swoonworthy he is. Mm-hmm. Whereas from Juana's perspective, he's tall. He has a very pointy angular face that is not handsome, is also viciously scarred. And that's what we see of him. But clearly other women throughout the text are seeing other sides of that and are don't understand why Juana isn't, you know, falling all over herself for him. And then we eventually find out she is falling all over herself for him. She just doesn't want to admit it. But I think it's it's gaslighting almost the reader's experience through Juana's perspective. You know, he's he's kissing her breasts and he's stroking her thighs and he's smelling her hair, right? It's very clearly like not something that she's willingly participating in at least from you know how the book uh is initially presenting it but it's also not like a slap bang and i think it's important that the text does have these other perspectives on the hero as a lover which doesn't happen very often besides like other women being like oh my god he's like so handsome and so rich like we don't get that with philippe but we do get like oh my god, what a man. And like, kind of a, you're too young to appreciate like, the real deal, sister. So, (laughs) like, there is that. Absolutely. But then like, this book has very weird feelings about sex, right? Because like, I, even her like, lady-in-waiting, Michaela, is like, falling all over herself for Philippe. And he mm-hmm. thinks this like really mean thing about Spanish women who like want it so bad that it's embarrassing to him that like it's so easy to mm-hmm. like unlock their desire. And then once that's done, like the chase is over and he's like, ew. Yeah. He says it's like a condition of their Roman Catholicism. Right. <laughs> That all these like horny Catholic ladies like really want his pants and then and then he's like, you want it too much? And so like sometimes Philippe is like that, but maybe that's understandable because when he came to Spain, he fell desperately in love with this woman, Elena, and she treated him really badly and had his face scarred uh, for his impudence. So he doesn't really like women a ton, it seems, especially in the first part of the book. No. But you're right, like, we don't ever usually hear about the sexual prowess intimated so explicitly to the heroine. 
And she, she of course, is a total jerk to him. But, but not not just to the hair, not just to the heroine, but to the reader. We have scenes where we are alone with Philippe and other women, and our Juana is none the wiser. She doesn't know that this is happening. Um, but we know that he's like we are made privy to the fact that he's like doing like tender loving care on these women i uh saw a tiktok guess what and this guy was reacting to the comment section on tiktoks celebrating this uh porn actor named owen gray and he was like so i was obviously like oh man what's this guy doing and then he's like it was wild it was just like regular sex. And I was like, why are people, why are women freaking out about regular sex? And he's like, so I think you guys out there are actually trying to do porn sex in your everyday lives. And he was like, (laughs) he said something along the lines of like, because I don't want to like go down that like existential rabbit hole of like what my fellow man is like, I'm just going to say, make eye contact, talk to your partner and use a vibrator and try to have regular sex. You kind of even get like shadows of this whenever we're with a So he like returns to Elena's bed as a way to get closer to Juana through one of their many misadventures. Um, and that's basically all he's doing. Like, it's the medieval version of, like, making eye contact, asking questions, and using a vibrator. And I thought that was striking. I think we talk about this, we've talked about this quite a bit recently, where it seems like sex scenes in romance novels are now, like, someone has to get choked or slapped and it has to be like rough sex. And so it's a little bit refreshing to read in a bodice ripper, like <laughs> like lovemaking with like a lot of conversation, which he has a lot of conversation with Juana as he's having sex with her and like telling her like what to expect and like asking her how things feel and like reacting to her reacting, right? It's kind of, I, I, like, I, I hesitate to say it's bizarre, right? Because this was the only game in town. Mm-hmm. So, of course, if this is the only space where sex scenes exist, in spite of the fact that it's a bodice ripper, they're going to be sex scenes that have a woman's perspective at the center of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sex scenes get weird because they're so prosaic, as you say. But even so, how how do I want to, like, enter into this? So, like, the first scene, the rape scene, he is talking to her. And because he had written her a note to, like, come to his chambers, she thought it was somebody else. She thought she was getting out. She thought she was going to be rescued. Turns out it's him. So it's, like, it's kind of they both miscalculate and then he's like well you're here it's midnight what did you expect to happen and she's like this isn't what I expected at all and he starts kissing her and like undoes her top and she's like not not into it and then they immediately move to a forced scene and then a few hours later he's talking to 
Eugenio, who's this schemer and the main antagonist of the whole text. And Eugenio is like, oh, man, you broke her. That's so great. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, she came here to marry a duke. And he's like, no, her dad sold her. She was actually in love with this other guy, Jamie. She didn't want to be here at all. And then Tristan Philippe feels really bad because he was under a mistaken impression that Juana was just as mercenary in her decision making as he is. And then he does have this moment of like, oh shit, I fucked that up. <laughs> and then he like tries to fix it, which is weird. She doesn't know it's where he lives. He lives like in a gatehouse. And she goes there because she thinks Jaime is the one who wrote her the note and that Jaime is there to like uh, help her escape. Right. I was under the impression that he was put up to it by Eugenio. And like what you're saying is correct. Like he thought her machinations were entirely mercenary and that she had come there in order to become a duquesa and not because her father was like, this is the best possible match for you. No other options will now henceforth be evaluated, right? Like being a duquesa, especially of this like really big estate in um, Andalusia. But there's prior, immediately prior to the scene she actually meets the Duke, who is – we're getting – okay, stuff you need to know. Philippe is a redheaded, we later learn, Scotsman who moved to Spain when he was eight years old. His family was murdered because of their religious beliefs, and he joined the military in order to, like, recover and uh, from that situation and became a very well-liked mercenary by this guy, Eugenio. Mm-hmm. Eugenio married this woman whose bro- brother and sister – okay, so her sister-in-law was knocked up by the king, surprise, and produced this heir, the duke, and she – then they both promptly died – And so she and her scheming husband, Eugenio, who's been trying to take over this estate through many wiles for a really long time, goes to take care of the Duke. And in the process, they hire Philippe, a.k.a. Philip, to be like the Duke's minder. So he – Philip goes over, shares a lot of what his work is, is like cleaning up after the Duke, keeping the secret of the Duke who has all of the – uh, Habsburg syndromes. He's epileptic. He has um, a distended jaw line um, and is unable to like speak properly because of it. And he also has a tendency to want to rape and murder women. And he does it a lot. And he has like a lot of like STIs we later find out as a part of that. Yes. Because Eugenio has literally been feeding him sex workers for the last few years to... Yeah, along with Philippe, who's been helping him. Right, to assuage these villainous appetites that his inbred bloodline has given him. So I think it's interesting that after she meets the Duke, this like weird side character, which there's a lot of them, there's nothing weird, but there's a lot of them. There's this other mercenary from Italy, not from England, named Martinetti, who starts telling Eugenio, like, I think what you're doing with this girl is pretty fucked up. 
I don't super want to be a part of it. And he says that from the beginning when she goes to meet him. Oh, one quick sidebar. Eugenio has found out that it, like he's had the Duke assessed and the Duke's sperm will not produce. Right. Yeah. So Eugenio's thing is we just need to marry her off and then she can have any lover she wants, but probably Philippe. Like Philippe is the one everybody likes. Philippe is a hot little number. And Philippe mm-hmm. is like really keen on Juana seeing what the Duke looks like because in his mind he's like she's – right, mercenary, like you said, and she's going to be, like, so disappointed in him, she'll turn her affections immediately towards me. That is not the case. Juana is pissed at all of them when she meets the Duke, and she immediately starts trying to figure out how to get out of it because she's like, there's no way. My father understood the stipulations here. This Mm -hmm. is illegal. And as she leaves, I believe it is a very much implied conversation where Eugenio is telling Philippe, You need to rape her so that she's no longer a virgin, so that she can't seek out another husband. That she can't even go back to her father. Absolutely. That's 100% implied. And the other part of the implication of that conversation is also that doctor who just delivered the news that the Duke can't produce an heir, you need to kill him. Like, here's the money for all of that. Yeah. So that's what Philippe is into. And that's what the first sexual encounter is about. Did Philippe need to do it himself? No, probably, like, but he did. That being their first encounter, you see this strange, like, tenderness at the end of it. Like, it's classic bodice ripper mindfuck stuff. And it's important to know that, like, this wouldn't have been that much of a mindfuckery, I don't think, for people who were consuming sexy, steamy, right, scare quotes romance at the time because this was, like – the coin of the realm. So all of that set up and all of that to say, when we first encounter Philippe, I know that this is going to be a bodice ripper. Like I wasn't 100% sure. I was pretty sure. But we have this like big, brutal looking man, right, who has lots of sex. And then he like fully schemes with Eugenio as far as like we've got to divest her of her virginity, which people – in the 80s still believed was like a tangible testable thing we've got a divestor of her virginity and i'm like okay but i was also immediately charmed by philippe and i was like i had like an existential crisis about it i was like is this because i have read enough bodice rippers that now i'm just like conditioned to be like this is the person who she'll fall in love with likewise i will fall in love with him like i have actually never liked a hero in one of these bodice rippers before, but I really like Philippe. Fuck if I know why. His only personality trait is that he's a jerk and that he, the other thing about him is he's tall, I guess. He's very tall. He has red hair and he dresses fancy and he has a scarred face. Like, is it that I'm primed? I have primed myself psychologically to like connect with these heroes? Or is it because he's an especially captivatingly written hero i don't know because i can't speak for your mind fuck but i would like to enter in a few other details to round out philippe and like so that first scene is terrible and then eugenio's like hey you did it good job like bra 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 eugenio says this thing philippe's like okay well we'll both get what we want i got the money she's gonna be the duchess and like all that's over and whatever and he's like oh no she didn't want that and then like just the there's like a ticking in philippe's jaw that indicates to us not eugenio that like 
Philippe is fucking upset. <laughs> and then there's this other scene where he's the lady of the house has a yeah. dwarf that she basically keeps as a pet, which is gross. But Philippe treats Pedrino like a person. He's one of the only people to treat Pedrino like a full-fledged person. There's even a scene where they're like standing on the stairs and he moves lower so that the differences in their height is lessened. And Juana sees and remarks on this and she's like, I refuse to see him as a kind man, but that's a kind gesture. The work of rehabilitating Philippe takes place almost immediately. And I don't think it hurts that our first encounter with Philippe, he's like perfectly nice and she treats him like a total asshole. Like she's the asshole in our first meeting, not him, which I think sets the stage. There are lots of other things that Philippe does that I think are quite charming, like I did not like him for a full half of the book, but there there was a definite shift for me. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Like, what was your experience of reading Philippe? I understood his anger to be justified at Eugenio and the Duke and, like, his situation, like, his parents dying in the Inquisition. I thought, like, the backstory was quite good. Then their very second sex scene left me quite, like, gobsmacked because, like, he breaks into her <laughs> room that she has locked against him. He has a secret doorway that he, there's – he well, everyone has it, but he knows where it is. Right. And so he, like, goes in there and she's, like, in her, like, cotton nighty or whatever. And he's, like – I've done you a service and you owe me and I've come to collect. And she's like, she basically is like, all right, I'll lay back and like, you do your thing. And he's like, no, you have to come to me. And so like, that's how the beginning of the like, quote unquote, consensual stuff starts. But it's definitely coercive, not consensual, except she immediately strips and he's like, it's candlelight and like volume is like billowing and like everything's like feels good and he cares very much about her pleasure and cares very much that she is is enacting her agency like he knows that she wants him even if she won't admit that to herself yeah what I hated was that he knew that about her she doesn't know it about herself yet and he's like constantly trying to humiliate her to admit it which I found really irritating yeah, and it's it is frustrating in that it's the main romantic conflict of the novel is that these two characters won't talk to each other, which remains like an evergreen thing that we do in romance novels that is never good. And that's the main thing, but like this like romantic tension has to come from somewhere because it's that tension that allows this like larger adventure to unfold in front of our heroine. And I would also say, like, she, like Philippe, is one of the most captivatingly, definitely for a bodice ripper, but for me, she was so captivatingly written because she wasn't just plucky, like, she was genuinely stalwart and strategic and, like, understood her situation. Like, she wasn't an idiot. Sometimes she made the wrong assumption, Mm -hmm. but she was able to recover from it, and she had so much ingenuity and brilliance and her calculations were understandable same with Philippe the only thing that I like couldn't get is like you're right he like is constantly trying to humiliate her into saying she loves him and he's at least like once they leave the castle and it's just like they won't admit to each other that they like each other which is very annoying they like marry each other 
In spite of. Okay, so, like, before we leave the castle, though, like, we have these two sex scenes, and then he reveals to her that the Duke is dead and that he has allowed this thing to happen. The Duke drowns in a vat of wine after raping and killing Juana's lady-in-waiting. Yeah. And so they're like, let's beat it, right? We got to get out of here. Let's let's go. And then our first road trip of the book begins. Now that's – so no. What <laughs> happens is this representative from the king comes to try and eliminate, eliminate the threat that is Eugenio because they found out – that rather than letting this bastard of the king die quietly in Andalusia, Eugenio is trying to get him married off to a country squire's daughter, right? And they're like, the king is like, you gotta, you gotta fi- figure out what's going on in Andalusia. You gotta nip this in the bud. Yeah, and we gotta, we've gotta stop this bloodline because I want that property back. Yada yada. And so he shows up. He's like. Juana doesn't want to marry the Duke. Eugenio is like, I have had her officially betrothed to him. So now it would be in spite of the church if you stop it. He like sets up Juana to be raped by the Duke. And then Philippe intervenes on her behalf over the course of this betrothal dinner. And the Duke disappears, right? He murders Michaela and then he disappears. And the Eugenio is like, I will have her her marry Philippe as a proxy for the Duke. And then like none of this will happen. And then Eugenio is poisoned by the representative from the king we later find out. And that guy sets them up. He's like, you guys need to leave the country. He's like, well, he doesn't tell them that, but he's like, Juana, mm-hmm. now that the Duke is missing, I'm going to send you home with your parents. And Philippe is going to be the one to go with you. Everyone protests it, including Eugenia's wife, who's, like, obsessed with Philippe. And he's like, nope, they have to go together. He's the only one who can do it. Plus her, like, former heartthrob, Jaime, has now shown up because they sent her aunt away, her meddling aunt, who reported, like, hey, something's amiss in Andalusia. So then her father sent Jaime. So now they're going to leave. And the plan was by this representative of the king – that he was like, Philippe is obviously in love with her. He will remove them from the country and all my loose ends will be tied. But that's not the case. <laughs> right. I like whether or not we find the Duke who is quote unquote missing. But we find out that Philippe and Juana know where the Duke's body is. It's in a wine barrel where he drowned. <laughs> <laughs> that starts the first road trip. The first road trip is Philippe trying to get rid of Jaime, and he does it just by being, like, super capable and undermining Jaime without ever up front undermining Jaime. And they get secretly married at a monastery that they stay at for the night. And this is the point at which I was like, oh, okay, so she does like him because she could have resisted that and reported it. Well, he says, if you don't marry me, I'm going to kill Jaime. Yeah, And she's like, well, I don't want Jaime to die. I don't really want to marry him anymore, but I guess I'll marry you. And, like, she could have made any other choice, right? Like, she could have woken Jaime up and been like, he's going to kill you. She could have told any of the monks in the monastery what the plan was, right? Like, Right. 
Instead, she gets married to the tall British giant. <laughs> okay, so they get married, and then they're on the road, and they get stuck in the mire. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> it's so hot. It's just, it's a very hot book, and, like, I... Is that your sexiest part? Because we can skip over that and keep going if you... No, it wasn't. It wasn't my. It wasn't gonna be my sexiest part. But now I'm like, maybe it is the sexiest it's part. It's so sexy. It's uh. It's just like, I understand that you do not think this book is worth eight hundred dollars, but I think this book might be worth eight hundred dollars. <laughs> you know, I'm coming around. Like as a collector's item, like eight hundred. Well, eight hundred is like the algorithm blowing itself, but. Sure. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Like, I want to return to that point later. But, like, they've gotten secretly married. He's constantly undermining Jaime. They get stuck in the mire. And then there's this crazy scene where she's, like, had to go out and walk in the mud. And her feet are, like, wet and cold. (laughs) And he, like, takes off her shoes. And she's like, please, please don't. Like, the worst humiliation a high-born Spanish lady can suffer is for someone to see her feet, which is, like weird and he like treats it like it's super weird he's like that's stupid but he knows that she doesn't want him to do it because it's like a humiliation like societal precepts he understands what's going on and he still does it and so then he like slowly strips her wet woolen stocking all the way down and then he starts like rubbing her feet and she's never had a foot rub before because of this prohibition about highborn ladies feet yeah and all he does is rub her feet and calves and I swear to god <laughs> he's like kneeling at the at her feet rubbing her feet and calves in the carriage <laughs> it's just it's just so like he has like Jaime has gone off because Jaime's mad because they're not taking his route they're taking Philippe's route and Philippe is like well it's my job to get her home safe and it's like Philippe is not leading them home but whatever no. And so then Jaime comes back and they're caught in flagrante foot rubbing. And then Philippe does this like, we're in love. And it's time you found out. Yeah. Right? To Jaime. He's like, we're actually already married. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jaime calls him out for like a duel yeah. of honor. And then, like, this is just a perfect scene. So now it's raining and, like, it's wet and cold. And, like, Jaime's, like, a, like, jumped up, like, you know, spitting cock. And he's like, fight me, fight me, fight me. And, you know, Philippe's like, chill, bro. I guess I'll do it for free. Let me get my sword. You know, like, we're cool. And he's, like, stretching. And all the while that he's, like, taking time to, like, stretch, Jaime's just getting more and more worked up. Like, he's just, like freaking the fuck out and then like they exchange like two blows and Jaime fucking leaves he just runs he just runs and then Philippe's like that was that was your man because like what about this one he's like yeah cool that went exactly as I expected it to (laughs) I think like I love talking about this book because I love all of the moves it makes I love all of the political motivations I love that it's like a puzzle and you're trying to figure out like who's doing what and why. Philippe's motivation is well and truly like he is in love with our with Juana. And Juana's motivation is that she just wants to survive. 
so they they continue on this road and he's like, oh, guess what? I already paid off the uh, people driving the carriage. And Juana has had these ideas of like chivalry, right? That are all getting torn asunder by Philippe and Jaime and the carriage and, right, the Duke and, you know, everything that she thought was true about the world in which she lived is being proven out to not be true. Mm-hmm. And everything that was kind of problematic about who she was in that world is starting to form itself as a boon. She is well equipped for this other life that she's embarking on with Philippe. There's adventure after adventure. There's a point at which she is like accidentally about to be sold as a virgin by this very wealthy woman who doesn't realize she's like a lady who she just, like, wants to live with for a while. She meets, like, they go to his, like, hometown. He starts trying to win her back. They have this, like, brief respite of almost wedded bliss, right? She's like, oh, we have to pretend to be happily married. But in actuality, she's just happily married. And it's um, while they're trying to escape and figure out their next move. It's just, like, a true adventure novel And when I came to this conversation, I was fully prepared to be like, this is an adventure book. This is not a romance novel. It's an adventure book with sex. But the romance between Philippe and Juana is the whole reason for the season. Like the adventure exists and continues to exist because he's in love with her, right? And it turns out the greatest adventure of all was (laughs) self-discovery. Little did Morgan know at the time that that was a stunning summation of both the whole text, but especially the first part. That's right, folks. We got to break this ginormous doorstop of a book into two parts. Uh, So this is the official end of part one. Please join us next week for the thrilling conclusion, acts two and three of The Flesh and the Devil by Womance. Woli guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.